This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 15th, 2024. I'm Scott Lundebo. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Welcome back, Scott. Thank you, and uh, thanks to uh, all the guests who uh, helped fill in and the work you did to uh, keep that going for the last couple weeks. It was a lot of fun, uh, but it was also a lot of work, and luckily it all worked out in that I had someone each week, but I, I'm so lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Oh, but we got lots to talk about today because the BC Build program is out. BC United has their own housing plan in response. We're underwhelmed by them both, but not as underwhelmed as the attorney, as the auditor general is by the ArriveCan app or by uh, everyone to the environment minister's latest comments. We'll get into it. First, as always, I have to pitch patreon.com slash politicos to help us keep the show going. Let's talk BC Builds. This is what we've been waiting for, the final shoe to drop of the David Eby fixes housing plans. We had a lot of fun bills in the fall, and we were waiting for the public sector build out. He's pitched it, and Ravi Callon pitched it as the making BC more like Vienna and Singapore, where there's a substantial amount of non-market housing. And what we got was uh, a rebrand. I can't remember the word transformative was actually used, but that was definitely the vibe that uh, a lot of the talk or kind of hints that that were pointing towards. And yeah, this is anything but. So the highlights are there's going to be Two billion dollars in low-cost financing, and there's going to be additional 950 million uh, in program funding for this. And this is all going to go towards uh, nonprofit housing providers, governments, and uh, First Nations to help build out uh, amidst uh, housing with at least 20% uh, being 20% below market. Um, that's the highlights. Astute observers will notice this actually sounds a little familiar, and uh, hence the the bit of the rebrand is quite a bit of this. Sure, seems like that uh, BC Housing Hub program that uh, got rolled out back when uh, John Horgan was premier. Yeah, uh, in prepping just this evening for the show, I was like looking at old programs and came across. Oh yeah, Housing Hub. It launched in twenty eighteen. With a little bit of money, it announced a few projects, got a you know, a couple thousand in the first couple of years. It got amped up in 2021 with $2 billion in low-cost financing being made available to the different kinds of groups that wanted to work with it. And it was targeting middle-income uh, British Columbians to have places to rent in subsidized housing. and. With a portion set aside at low market. Yeah. And now Housing Hub has said it is transitioning new projects over to BC Builds. 
existing housing hub projects will continue, but they are not accepting any new applications. So it seems very much like the $2 billion pot that was sitting on housing hubs pile is now the $2 billion pot sitting on BC Built. And on discovering this, I'm I'm so mad. <laughs> I'm so yeah, mad, I, Scott. <laughs> and to top it all off, uh, there's in the press release three different projects they choose to highlight. Uh, this got me curious. So in the uh, pre-show prep, I uh, Googled all three of them. Didn't come across much on the way of the... Uh, one that's happening in Cowichan, but uh, the North Vancouver project, uh, there is a 2023 press release from both BC Housing and the government uh, highlighting that. So prior to this, it was already uh, rolling along with uh, government support. And as well, the one in Gibsons, there was a 2022 press release, uh, specifically calling out the housing hub funding for that. And it's not done yet. So, cool. so we're not even like achieving the fast builds that this is wanting to get to. And we'll get to that because that is something newer in this that it wants to do. But one of the changes... Yeah, I, I don't really mind that like a project that got announced two years ago isn't done yet. The This is what, you know, BC Housing... Uh, this is what uh, BC Builds would be building. Kind of feels a little hollow when you realize it's the same pot of money and the same projects being recycled. When BC Housing's housing hub was announced back in 2018, they said they were targeting people who make and households who make under 99,000. Uh, BC Builds is now looking at people, and if you dig way into the documents, you see it's exactly people up to the 75th income quartile. And so they're looking for families who can go into studio one bedrooms whose household income is between 85 and 132,000 or for people going into two beds or larger families will be looking at incomes as a household 134,000 to 190,000 uh which is higher than most government projects have been in a while which yeah, so isn't like a the worst thing but it's, it's notable it's not a deal breaker especially Especially because these work on like a cross-subsidized basis where the people paying market rents and this is geared off 30% of income. So it, market rents are high. It's going to result in some fairly high uh, incomes to hit that 30% mark for market rents of new uh, construction. So on, on that sense, it makes sense. And, you know, the money from that is going to go to help subsidize those 20% that 20% below market. Yeah. So on that front, it's not unreasonable. It means the money that is going into this can go a lot farther because they're relying on cross subsidization model rather than just making everything have to be carried by the government funding on it. Entirely reasonable. On the political side, I am not sure the message that, hey, with our Brand new program. If you make $130,000 a year, you may one day hope to rent a studio apartment. It's going to land the way that uh, they'd want it yeah, to. Yeah, the headlines on this were all coming from a few different angles. Some were like income-tested housing coming from BC government. Others were like middle-class housing and others... You know, like they were all accurate, but there's different ways to look at it. And, you know, $200,000 household income is not 
poor. Um, but what, like, the defense I could mount of this is that there is a value, right? There is a value to just getting more housing. We've talked about this endlessly on this podcast. And so this will do that, right? Getting more housing up, it allows more units to open up. Maybe these are all set at market as well, which is a helpful utility because between the market rents and the uh, below market rents these require, it kind of serves as an anchor on the private market since we're creating so many new units that they can't drive housing up. They can't like come online and be 10% above market because they're shiny new ones. So like I'm supportive of the project. I'm just frustrated by the rebrand. Like there is the 950 million in additional funding here. So that's not, not something to sneeze at. We were trying to figure that out in the Slack this morning and it seemed like it might just be operating funds, but that's an obscene amount of money to just run a program. And I think what it's going to go to is the grants. So I'll touch on that in a second. But with how they structure BC builds, which is slightly clearer, I guess, than Housing Hub, is doing the same kind of thing as Housing Hub, connect and supporting land partners and home builders, basically here, this nonprofit or the government has land over here, that nonprofit developer wants to build on it, let's put the friends together and make housing happen. Should be, you know, basic first step. Number two is streamlining approvals. So they are going to use BC builds to try to like multitask all of the things that need to go through for a building to get built in 12 to 18 months, things that would you, they estimate usually take three to five years. And that's probably the biggest win of this is cutting that development time down, that pre-construction development time way down if they can do it. Possibly, but only a certain amount of that's going to fall on the project management side from the the builder and developer on this. A lot of that is it just takes a long time to work its way through their municipal Luckily, they just tore up a whole bunch and, of the zoning laws for all the cities. Yeah, like that, that's where the real gains going to be on this. Having slightly more resources to stick handle the projects doesn't hurt, but it's not going to really matter all that much if it takes you know, three years to get a rezoning to uh, to build stuff on the land they already own. But cutting that stuff out, which they've already done, is going to be where the real benefit is. And I'm just not sure this money getting added to that's going to do a lot to to speed that up. The final thing that is potentially helpful is in addition to the low interesting interest financing, I mentioned the grants. And what they're saying is they are going to give a grant of up to $225,000 per unit to nonprofit and First Nation developers. If you get that grant, you have to meet the 20% of units are 20% below market. And you have to guarantee those rents for 35 years because people have already noticed some housing hub units jumping up in rents. Uh, some were given 10-year requirements to stay affordable. Uh, some noticed they went to Airbnb before the laws have changed, pretty much banning Airbnbs in the major centers. So I think they're closing some of those loopholes and these direct grants. If that $950 million is going to these grants, that's 4,000 units that can be built. So something, it's not a huge amount of grand scheme of things, but you know, better than nothing. And yeah, just for us to show 
building a house is really expensive. It is hard to do it at scale if you're uh, trying to fund it all through the government. And so, yeah, it seems like we got not the amount of money I was Fresh hoping. Paint. Uh, and then it seems like even the money that's there is just a rebrand. And with, you know, 950 million is not something to sneeze at. That does seem largely new, but you know, we'll take a closer look at the budget when it comes in a few weeks and maybe they'll announce more money for housing then, but I don't see why you wouldn't have announced it today or this week with this announcement. So this might be it. Yeah. I'm going to be really interested in ha pulling open last year's budget at when this one comes out and doing a side by side on their housing funding, because based on what we've come across here, I, I'm going to expect there's going to be a huge delta on that. But they're not the only party with ideas on how to fix housing. United to fix housing is the plan coming from BC United, uh, and they're going to fix the NDP housing crisis with Kevin Falcon's sweeping new plan. Sweeping might be a little generous on this. It's a few ideas bundled together. It's hard to call this comprehensive in any way. Uh, the highlights are they're going to uh, put in a rent-to-own program that is going to require 15% of uh, homes to be set aside for first-time homebuyers uh, in projects. A little unclear how much of this is just a strict mandate and how much of this is a opt-in program the, the language in there is really confusing or on which it is uh then there's also going to be a increase in the uh cap for the no property transfer tax for first-time home buyers it's going to climb from uh 500k to uh a million so you know if you're a first-time home buyer in the Vancouver area, that's good because that's uh, most of the units out there uh, wouldn't have qualified under the uh, existing cap. Doesn't do Their backgrounder notes there's about 40 units in the city of Vancouver that are for sale that you could uh, buy that would be under the cap. And I don't imagine they're the nicest on the market. I guess they're new still, but... And if you're outside of Vancouver, there's it probably helps a bit too on that. Uh, and then there's the idea they have of using public land for non-market housing. Uh, in this case, $1.99 year leases, as well as they're going to get rid of the PST on residential home construction. With the rent... This, the property transfer tax one, I feel like Christy Clark had talked about increasing that during her final campaign. I don't think it was up to a million. The rent-to-own one really is the only one that stands out here as anything newish, and just the distortionary effects alone of putting fifteen set aside fifteen percent of every new project for this seems like it's going to cause more problems than it solves yeah so the property transfer tax elimination and the pst on residential home constructions means if you're looking to buy a new condo in bc you could be saving 
on a million dollar condo or something, which like isn't nothing, but it's not the, it doesn't like eliminate the housing crisis overnight. And if anything, it juices demand a little bit in a time when that's not the like barrier. The barrier is the overall price. And so like they don't do a ton of harm, but they don't seem to also do that much good. So you can kind of just ignore them. The We're going to use public land for below market rental housing. In this case, at least they maintain it as 99-year leases. Um, Is that sort of thing that every government and every it, party have, have it's literally the, about doing like or where doing? BC Build starts with, except they are also putting money to help things get built on it. So... That that plank is just like the broke version of BC Builds, which is even more disappointing. And yeah, the rent to own is interesting, right? Because they're saying that if you take possession of one of these new units, you get to pay rent on it for three years, but all of that goes into your down payment. And the government is covering like the carrying costs and propping up the developers through this if they're at risk of falling down. So there's unseen costs to government of this. Um, it, it, it is really unclear if this is like all future housing, because it says this innovative program will require developers of new housing to set aside 15% of homes in participating projects. So I, I guess you opt in? Like I said, it's very unclear on that because i believe they also talk about requiring it at one point it, it's not very specific like and they break it down like if you're looking at a place that's worth yeah, nine hundred thousand so, over three years you would have a hundred and eight thousand dollars put towards the down payment which will be 12 percent. which you know that's good and then you can transition to a mortgage at, at roughly the same probably as your rent would be in that realm maybe even a little bit less Rent-to-own programs were big in the UK. I know they started there under the Thatcher era you were talking about before the show. And I remember when I was in the UK, there was a lot of talk of them as a pitch for housing, I think from Labour, but also probably from the Tories. Like, it's kind of a non-partisan thing. If your country really likes home ownership, then rent-to-own seems like a shortcut to make it work. So, Which is the case in like every Anglo-American country. Yeah. We do love our home ownership. And like, so yeah, it's, it's not a terrible idea. Um, also not really sold on it. It's, just, it's not clear it's going to solve anything because you need to build these projects somewhere. Right. And thankfully they can now build things when, once the zones are updated in the next few months, but that's. Yeah. All of which is going to happen for the next lecture, which yeah, it does take the wind out of their sails a bit, but. There's got to be something more, something more they can offer on this beyond these four kind of piddly uh, offerings here. I'm also like super confused why developers would, if this is an opt-in program, why would they choose to go into this? I guess because then you don't have to actually be good at building because the government will back your company. <laughs> so good developers won't do it and shitty ones will. And Yeah, some of the risks. <laughs> This is really half-baked, Scott. <laughs> I can see some advantages versus rentals, but I just don't really see the uh, 
benefit if you're a condo developer to ditch condos for a rent-to-own scheme. We were promised a United Housing Pro plan for months, and I guess just on the politics side, it's I really struggle to see kind of who are the uh, the voters this is going to win over. Are there that many people? Who I think their argument see the uh, the property transfer tax on a seven hundred thousand dollar home as their big impediment going to really swing the uh over to the dc united just for this it's it's so small potatoes there really isn't a galvanizing impact on any of this i think that's a great question because i don't think this is targeted to win wannabe home buyers or people who are really suffering from the housing market it's like maybe people who are just on the edge and like the rent to own thing is like, oh, great, I don't have a down payment. This is actually a program that would help me kind of situation. But for the most part, I think this assuages the comfortable homeowners do for them either. who are relatively wealthy and but like recognize there's a problem. Well, it, it, it says that BC United recognizes there's a problem and will do something, but they're not going to spend much money on it because they're just doing some tax cuts. And so it fits with like, that kind of ideology. If you were a longtime BC Liberal voter and you're worried that the BC NDP are spending too much, there's not really on the tin spending here. Like cuts to revenue should be counted as spending in this situation. And the rent to own program has a giant unknown dollar sign beside it. But like there's no cost to this from your vantage point in many ways. And so, but it looks like something, not a lot, (laughs) but. And so they're not trying to win new voters. Maybe it's more of a try to save their own. Uh, it's not like we've seen the BC Conservatives recommend much more on housing. I think theirs was similarly uh, tax cut based, if I remember. They announced something on housing. We talked about it. Density zones. <laughs> oh, yeah. Their, their density zones were introduced special density zones that allowed the provincial government to supersede local councils and streamline park debt. So they're actually more in line with the... Uh, with the BC NDP of data, that's maybe a little redundant with the, the recent zoning changes, but at least that's potentially a pretty bold move on housing. So yeah, I think I between the uh, the two right of center parties, I think I uh, got to give it to the conservatives on this one. Trivially, they have one line on their uh, vague policy document. Yeah, it's not like a giant. Uh, PDF where they go into this all in detail, but just taking at face value, it would at least do more than the BC United plan does. Maybe says more about BC United. <laughs> Not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just scrolling back through BC conservative news releases and it's just largely uh, nomination results and a couple other statements around uh drug policy and parental rights and the notwithstanding clause for both those things. Uh, Great party, great times, but yeah, not much in terms of housing in their recent statements, as far as I can tell. So I want to see something good in this throne speech and next week and in the budget after that, because I feel real let down on that. After that, we actually got the big, we'll make a giant difference legislation in the fall. So even if this is a little disappointing, the BC builds is a little disappointing. It's on net. The government's doing pretty well on this stuff. We'll just have to see how they stick the land in on actually pushing the, the local governments. 
to follow through on it. Yeah, I was saying if I had the time, I would go through and create a chart of like where all of the municipalities, at least in Metrovan, if not BC, are at updating their zoning bylaws. But that sounds exhausting, despite being something I would be very <laughs> yeah. Into. First, the Patreon's quite not quite at the point where we can uh, take time off our jobs to uh, take on that sort of project. It would also, I've oh, scrolled municipal terrible. websites and it's awful. Like it is so painful to try to figure out how everyone's going. But uh, someone who won't be sticking around to see how BC Builds rolls out is Mike DeYoung, who has announced that after 30 years as a member of the Legislative Assembly, it's time to do something else. And he is not going to seek a ninth term in office. It's a good stretch. It's a solid career. That is an obscene. Yeah. Uh, first elected in 1994 in Matt Squee, which became Abbotsford Mount Lehman and now Abbotsford West. There was like part of what uh, uh, he's only ushered six... out the Sotreds and in the uh, BC Liberals. It was a, a pretty big uh, moment at that point. Because they were still a very young party that had not yeah, really he was, uh, proven itself electorally. Yeah, he was only around 30 when he was elected because he's only 61 now. Uh, and so there's a question of whether he may run for the federal conservatives. Uh, he would be a pretty big get if he does jump that way. Um, he's had quite the career in BC politics. He's gotten a lot of respect from people across the aisle. Uh, one of the most prominent times in his office was when he was a cabinet minister. And I believe someone was trying to FOI his emails and coming up dry. And it was like, well, he's an old farmer who doesn't use email. Which would just be, if he does jump to the Utah that just be good an defense. amazing contrast with the uh, almost terminally online peer poll. <laughs> like some staffer is going to have to print out the memes yeah. and walk them over to his desk. Yeah. Um, DeYoung has served in his time in the BC Liberal governments as Minister for Multiculturalism, Minister for Finance, Minister of Health, Minister of Public Safety, the Attorney General, Minister of Aboriginal Relations and Reconciliation, Minister of Labor and Citizen Services, and finally the Minister of Forests. Uh, that was his first. I went in reverse order. But kind of, yeah, kind of ministers of everything without being the minister of everything. So good luck to you, Mike DeYoung. I know he sought the leadership of the BC Liberals. Two cycles ago. Uh, I don't, he didn't, uh, one or two cycles ago. Didn't manage to win, but yeah. I think he played Kingmaker that time, in a way. Yeah, big loss for the uh, BC United too. He'll be missed by many, I think. And it opens up an interesting challenge in Abbotsford for whether for who becomes the next MLA, right? Because I think it's out there that the BC Conservatives have elected, have nominated uh, one of the Newfelds, Corky Newfeld, as their candidate. Um, BC United, I don't, well, I guess they have to pick their candidate now because DeYoung's only just announced his retirement. Uh, it would be a long shot for the BC NDP, but they have been slowly reaching out into the valley and if that's a three-way race it'll be an interesting one to watch in the fall yeah if the uh 
DC United wasn't imploded. I'd say the uh, 2020 election probably would have been the NDP's high watermark for uh, pushing out in the valley. But yeah, with uh, how things are shaking up on the right, it, there could be some very interesting splits on that that uh, let the NDP pick up a couple of seats they normally wouldn't. Yeah, the NDP having spent $5,600 in the 2020 election uh, came in second at 36.5%, and Mike DeYoung took 45%, having spent $46,000. So, yeah, that'll be an interesting race to watch for sure, even if much of the province seems like it's just going to go orange by default yeah, this year. I mean, we have a conservative party that's on the upswing, and you know, a traditionally uh, federally conservative held by the BC Liberal right. Right now, it's uh, those are the ones that I could see them uh, eyeing pretty closely. So, could be a very interesting race. Let's jump to federal politics for a few shorter stories. God, speaking of things that will continue to hang on this government's neck and make that next federal election likely next year, unless. I don't know, Pharmacare falls through. The NDP has been rattling their sabers, although they're only threatening to go to vote-by-vote issues if they tear up their supply and confidence They've rattled their sabers so many times. They're basically into the boy dried wolf territory at this point. Really don't think... March 1st is the next deadline. (laughs) I really don't think anyone in Ottawa is taking uh, the NDP's threats all that seriously anymore. But that's not the story we're here to talk about. Uh, Yeah, someone who is a very sharp critic of the government and pretty much every government of the day is the Auditor General, just a fantastic office that just releases reports that are like, here's all the things you did wrong. With like every once in a while, there's a, that program was okay. In this case, we're looking at the ArriveCan app developed by Canadian Border Service Agency and others during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is very much in the everything was done wrong category of Auditor General reports. The first line, overall, Canadian Border Services Agency, Public Health Agency of Canada, Public Service and Procurement Canada repeatedly failed to follow good management practices in contracting development and implementation of the app. As a result of the many gaps and weaknesses we found in the project's design, oversight, and accountability, it did not deliver the best value for taxpayer dollars spent. Uh, They go on to say that because of CBSA's uh, documentation and controls being so poor, they could not figure out exactly how much was spent on this app at all. Uh, They estimate, based on what scraps of paper they found, that it probably cost about $60 million dollars. Could be more, uh, could be which less. Just blew There's out. A, yeah. This was also an app that was it, supposed to cost eighty thousand dollars, which I don't think quite hits long gun registry of uh, two million to two billion for cost overrun uh, all time records. But damn, that's pretty close. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, like the whole thing's a disaster, and more the point. There's basically no records on any of this, which is sketchy. The the public service is not known for uh, a lack of paperwork, and they are notorious for putting everything in writing as a cover-your-ass maneuver uh, and making sure everything's documented. So the fact that 
they just like don't have invoices for stuff. There's no records of who approved certain parts of the contract and certain pay. It's just a void, which is not how things normally go. Yeah, I'm very curious how much of this is specific to the con. Like, I know there have been issues across the public service, and like the we scandal uh, is a very specific indictment on this government. But in this case, I do wonder if it's like Canada Border Service Agency specifically being a problem because, you know, the AG singles them out repeatedly for like a disregard for policies, controls and transparency and contracting processes, uh, deficiencies and how they manage contracts. Uh, they gave a sole source contract to GC strategies for no, no obvious reason. And that seems to have triggered some further investigations. The RCMP is going to start looking into how some of this was done. Uh, notably, it seemed like there was situations where the agency wasn't even following their own code of conduct, where CBSA employees were going to dinners and otherwise being wooed by contractors who ultimately got jobs from CBSA. So that's sketch. Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, Weird stuff. And previously talked a second about that uh, CG strategies. Now, you would think that this being an IT contract, they are an IT company that employs software engineers and coders and people who actually make apps. But you would be wrong. It is a two-person outfit that basically exists to get contracts and then subcontract all the work out while pocketing a commission on it. Which sure seems sketchy. It, 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 general contractors, having subcontractors is not a new thing. And it's practiced in a lot of industries. But you know, usually in those cases, the, the GCs are at least handling a significant amount of contract administration, project management and stuff, and overseeing it. And, you know, employer a sizable cohort of people to to run those. This really just seems like middleman stuff that is entirely there to skim stuff off the top by having a cozy relationship with people in the government. There does not seem to be a, a value add here the way there would be for, say, general contractors that employ subcontractors on projects. Yeah, like, I think there is some allowance in this exceptional case that it wasn't going to be perfect, right? It was the pandemic, and there was a necessity to get an app like this out to help facilitate international travel and proof of vaccination and all the kinds of things we were looking at and what we needed. That said, I also think that gets played into a defense for the liberals that goes that doesn't cover the gross mismanagement here right it's a case where people go and i mean on the other side you also get people who are like didn't want any covid restrictions or apps and even if this wasn't a boondoggle would be damning it and so this is bad this is really indefensible um it should be acknowledged as such, especially by people who have supported restrictions for the pandemic and supported the 
actions taken by the provincial and federal governments at the time. Um, but yeah, it's so clear that like at some, as the auditor general notes in here, like at some point generally like CBSA didn't have the capacity to build an app. So bringing on contractors made sense, but there was some need to internalize some of that knowledge so they could do it in-house and save what turns out to be tens of millions of dollars in the end. And that never happened. Instead, they just cut, kept cutting checks to these consultants and we don't even have evidence of how many checks were cut. Or what the checks that were cut were for because a sizable portion of the invoices did not contain enough information to assign it to specific projects and specific uh, milestones on the contract. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a mess. Um I, I'm honestly just a little fab, flabbergasted at all of this because it is wild when you think about good contract management practices and, and how governments are supposed to run. And yeah, now that there's, in addition to the Auditor General report, the RCMP, they've not formally said they're running an investigation on this, but the between the lines statement, it sure looks like they're taking an interest in this and RCMP investigations are slow, but uh, not so slow that we might not have arrests being made in the lead up to the next election. Not likely at the political level, but I'm not sure that really matters when people in the ministry being led by an unpopular incumbent government start being hauled off in handcuffs. The only potential saving grace, I think, is the uh, what you mentioned with it being kind of just in the general COVID cloud and most people just do not want to talk about that, would rather put the pandemic behind them and not relitigate everything in there. That might be the only thing that stops this from becoming a bigger deal, but it has all the hallmarks of something that uh, is going to hang around a government's neck. Well, and like related to that, the other weird story here was just at the end of last week, there was this report that the House of Commons Operations Committee was having hearings on the ArriveCan app, and they were given a report, a, comp a confidential report about the app, and I'm not even clear where it came from. Uh, oh, it was, sorry. And the report was produced by Michelle Lafleur, who's the Executive Director of Professional Integrity at CBSA. Basically... And, yeah, the internal police for CBSA. The, yeah, the guy who would manage the conflicts of interest yeah. that were clearly being violated. And the M Emma and MPs opted to suspend the hearings with uh, Liberal MP and committee vice chair Majid Johari saying he was flabbergasted and quote, we're doing a disservice to justice. I'm being very serious about this. I'm not a lawyer, but what I read, it's scary. Uh, the NDP MP Taylor Backrack agreed saying everyone wants to get to the bottom of the happen. I read through the preliminary statement of facts. I don't think that it would be compromising the investigation to say what I read. I found deeply troubling. Uh, most Canadians, if they read the statement of facts, would be deeply troubled by what seems to have gone on, which kind of speaks to how that report, the Auditor General's report, have gotten over to the RCMP and there's further investigations. Um, the Conservatives didn't 
support the motion to suspend the hearings, but the block and the NDP did. Um, so we don't know more about what's going on there, which is a little bit. It's weird though. Like frustrating for t- transparency, but scary- yeah, when there's a headline, like committee stops meeting because of scary report. Yeah. And you know, bad contracting practices, grift, wasted money, all- potential corruption. None of that's good. None of that's also what I would apply the word scary to, which has, there are other bad adjectives you can use for that that are more appropriate. And that's what has me so curious about this, especially because it was a government MP that said that. Like, there is, there really feels like there's another shoe to drop if it's that. And I'm not sure what it is, but. I think there were concerns. I think there were concerns within the app about data privacy as well. Yeah, and given how much private data went through it, maybe mishandling that could be scary. Or I, I'm wildly speculating. If we're wildly speculating, the other potential thing is some compromising of the government's computer services that uh, run our border security. Yeah, um, neither of those are good. Um, but yeah, this is of course wild speculation because we don't actually have the information, but, uh, it's odd. It's really odd. And I I hope we find out what that's all about. Of course, it's not a country that's particularly transparent about things, but I don't know. Maybe we'll get another public inquiry out of this. Maybe. This doesn't feel like it's at that level yet, given the number of public inquiries we've seen of late. But true, yeah, things escalate quickly, it seems. Yeah, there's a weirdness there, though, that kind of feels like it deserves more scrutiny. Speaking of deserving scrutiny, uh, Stephen Gilbo has gotten a lot this week after he just randomly decided to say, we're not going to fund roads anymore as a federal government, and then had to clarify okay, yeah, obviously we're funding roads still. We're just not going to put up cash for large road projects, which, as I understand it, has actually been the federal government's like internal policy for a little bit. Like This isn't a new announcement. It's more just like... Bo's a bad politician. and <laughs> A way for him to trigger all of the concern, all the like car drivers uh, in the country. Every liberal candidate in the 905 must be going insane and cursing post name right about now because they were already facing an uphill battle and that's the sort of thing that's just gonna tank them so yeah it's, it's a, very on a, on like funny. a general policy level the idea that hey the the marginal transportation infrastructure dollar is probably better spent on alternatives to highways is an entirely defensible position it is also there's a way to deliver that and that basically nobody gets upset by all that much kind of the way I just did or burying it in some policy statement in a budget document somewhere. Uh, and then there's uh, going out and saying, we're just not going to fund roads that you all drive on, uh, which is guaranteed to make everyone go at best, what? And are you serious? Can we get someone else in here, please? So it's more than the specifics of the policy. It's really the uh, the lack of care of the craft of politics that stands out in here. And I do not get why this guy's still a minister. 
he's not shown himself to be an exemplary talent in any particular way and just causes problems with his off-the-cuff comments. It's because he makes Daniel Smith mad. He makes Alberta's conservative premier mad. I think it's more that for some reason Quebecers like him. Yeah. But at this point, he's doing more damage outside of Quebec than he gains them in Quebec. Yeah, I don't... I don't actually know what his original comments were. I was glib about them. Uh, I think from the CBC article, it's that he said uh, money that in the past has been spent on asphalt and concrete for roads could be, quote, better invested into projects that will help fight climate change and adapt to its impacts, which actually is a true and uh, decent statement in emphasizing active transport port. Um, and he's highlighted that, for example, the federal government isn't going to put money into the Troisième Ligne that the CAC has been trying to fund in Quebec City, a third link. Just the uh, third crossing. Yeah. Um, but like he has pissed off Daniel Smith. I saw David Eby was complaining that the province wants money for uh, the George Massey Tunnel upgrades, as well as finishing Highway 1 upgrades. And like, you know, there's an argument around jurisdiction that I'm not as strongly wedded to that the federal government doesn't really need to be putting money into roads. That is very much a provincial priority. The, I mean, you can say the same thing about transit yeah. and like so many other things. And like the Trans-Canada Highway, if, if there's one road the federal government should be funding, it's probably parts of that. Yeah. But. And like there's, yeah, well, the more, on average, probably new roads are not a great point. It's, there are probably some projects that are edge cases or, Ones that uh, made sense, particularly connecting to remote areas where, you know, say the Ring of Fire, uh, for example, where they're the minerals that uh, Canada's going to need to go forward with the energy uh, transition for batteries and a bunch of other clean technology is. That's why they have good access right now. There's a solid case that an investment in new road infrastructure to that is going to have a, a positive impact and would make sense to invest in. It's like a blanket statement. It's also not great on that front. Anyway, I just found it funny that he said the quiet part loud and a lot of people got angry. At... Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I, I will point out like, I think David Eby's comments there show pretty much why he's going to be cruising to re-election beyond the um, fact that the opposition is in disarray, is that uh, he knows where the median voter is, and he is determined to not let there be any daylight between them and the NDP. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.